Hey, what's up, everybody? This is the Nowhere to Go But Up podcast, and I'm your host, Sean Dustin. Uh, another Monday. Happy Monday to everybody out there. I hope you had a great weekend. All you mothers out there, happy Mother's Day. Uh, if somebody didn't tell you that, you're going to hear it from me. Uh, I appreciate you and all of your efforts and everything you do out there for your families. Um, I have a very special guest today. His name is Peter Panagor, and he has a very interesting story. Uh, it has to do with life after death and near-death experiences, which are very, very fascinating to me, and I can't wait to listen to his story and ask him some questions about what he went through. But first, uh, <laughs> this episode of the podcast is brought to you by uh, Get Past Your Shit, the book. Uh, it's 19 stories of imperfect people who prove you can uh, by my friend Kelly McCauzy. All of that information and direct links to her book as well as anything about her are available in the description, as well as everything that we talk about and all of the links to Peter and his documentary and everything about him and myself will also be available in the show notes as well. Uh, if you're on YouTube, do me a favor and hit that subscribe button and thumbs this video up. If you're watching on Facebook, do me a favor, like and share. And anywhere else, just, you know, go ahead and subscribe. That would definitely help me out. I look forward to connecting with you. And if you guys have any suggestions uh, of things that I could be doing better or things that I'm doing that are annoying the hell out of you, uh, do me a favor and uh, just email the show at nowhere to go but up now at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing from you and your requests or your um, uh irritations you know with how i do my show i'm always uh there to listen right so anyways uh after these messages we will be right back with peter sean dustin spent time in federal and state prison for drug trafficking and fraud upon release in 2006 he had nothing but the clothes on his back a bag of mail and legal paperwork. In 2010, he kicked a long-time methamphetamine habit and started the long climb back up the ladder of life. This is the Nowhere to Go But Up podcast. If you want transparency and authenticity, you're in the right place. This is the Nowhere to Go But Up podcast, and this is Sean Dustin. All right, welcome back. What's going on, Peter? Hey, Sean. I loved your intro. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, hopefully, it was a lot better than that, that stuttering I did in the beginning. Jesus, I, 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 I'm not very good when it comes to that intro part with the, uh, all the announcements and stuff. I thought you did fabulous. Oh, well, thanks. I appreciate it. I mean, it. honestly, truly. I was like, I, I wasn't jaw dropped, but I was mouth open. I was like... <laughs> 
Well, hey, I appreciate you uh, coming on the show and uh, being willing to share your story with us today, with myself and the, and the listeners out there. Let me get this. No, I'll leave that on there on the bottom. Um, yeah. So tell me a little bit about yourself um, and, and this amazing story of yours. I think that I got it wrong when I said you froze to death and that was in the title of this, uh, this broadcast. So definitely we're going to get to the bottom of that, you know, sorry for the mistake. Um, and, uh, yeah, let's, let's, let's get it right. All right. So I froze to death. I did. That's what happened to me for real. Okay. So you were right, Sean, just want to point that out. You were right. Okay. And, uh, yeah. So I was 21 years old. I just turned 21. I was an exchange student from the UMass, from UMass Amherst to Montana State University in Bozeman. I didn't want to go back to Boston for spring break. I was an, a mountaineer, an adventurer, backpacker, National Ski Patrol, you know, Boy Scout my whole life, all that kind of stuff. Outdoors. I was an outdoors guy. And I found a, a climbing partner at the outdoor club at Montana State University. A guy I did not know. And we got to know each other a couple of weeks ahead of time. He had a trip planned, 10 days in the backcountry in March with 10 feet of snow, uh, about a day's drive from the Arctic Circle and north of Banff in Alberta. And we spent the first few days in British Columbia, snow caving up to a mountain, skiing in for eight days or so and having an incredible time. Wow. Came back out. Oh, it was awesome. Living in snow caves, uh, came across an avalanche area, just silence. I, I one time I had to wax one of my skis once and I had to get off my ski to do this. I had like a 70 pound pack on. I fell in the snow up to my neck and it was like 10 feet deep. I had to swim out of the snow. Um, it was it was never dangerous, but it was really funny. How, how, how hard is that? Because, you know, I, I did an outward bound and I had to wear a 70 pound pack. Uh, and this was in, um, Joshua's Joshua tree down, down, you know, in Southern California. And this was when I was younger, way younger. And that was hard. So I can't imagine what being on skis and carrying a 70 pound pack would be like slow going, but I had, I had backcountry skis on. I wasn't, you know, I was geared up and, um, the skis were excellent. I still have them and they're in the barn. They're still <laughs> hanging in the barn and uh, they're, they're really great skis, a pokey nine hundreds. So, um, anyway, that, that's not really the story that I'm trying to tell. It's okay. I, 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 after the snow cave thing event, um, we went to a world famous ice climb called, uh, lower weeping wall on a place called Cirrus mountain. It's a 10,000 foot mountain, but we only went up five or 600 feet, but it's, it's not far off of the ice fields parkway. It's, within 50 to 70 yards you walk into it you park across the street you grab your gear you walk into it we got there there was 10 feet of snow on the ground and a bunch of teams on the ice they're all climbing up maybe a dozen we're the last team that shows up and i'd never ice climbed before i'd I'd mountain climbed and rock climbed and i'd use ropes and carabiners and knots and all this kind of stuff but i never ice climbed and i couldn't come up with two axes i could only come up with one axe and a and a hammer and the hammer is about this big and the axe is about that long can't even see it on camera how big it is and when you place an axe in the ice you you put the bit in and you tip the the pick in and it's long and so it has a like a nylon, the one I used had a nylon tube uh, that I could suspend myself from it. I could click this thing in and slide this bead down on the tube and I could let go and I could just hang on the mountain like this. Uh, Physics. It's just physics. 
So it's a high, it's a hypotenuse. Did you have did you have any any ropes on or anything? Oh yeah yeah yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that sounds well, like yeah. you're you know, just um, hanging there. Well, I, but uh, but I but my, my hammer, which mm-hmm. was a pre- much shorter because I couldn't come up with two axes, uh, I could never hang on because it was so sh- as short as a like a six or eight inch hammer. So I could lock it into the ice and I could use it to climb with, but it's. A uh, strap was attached to the bottom, the butt end of the hammer. And so I could never dangle on it because it just pull out. So mm-hmm. I had to expend all this energy of my forearms mm-hmm. much more rapidly. I never got to rest. I always had to grip. And so what that meant was is, and we agreed to this ahead of time. And Tim was a, Tim was a lead climber, certified lead climber. I'd really, I'd been climbing a lot. I've been on the ski patrol since I, since I was a sophomore in high school. So I'm like serious winter guy. But I was also bravado and decided to talk, you know, I could talk to him into that. I could climb this with this hammer. And I did. Mm-hmm. The only problem was, is that I, I burned out so fast that by the time we reached the top of the climb, five, seven, six, five or 600 feet up, uh, the sun was setting because we had to move so slowly. Mm-hmm. And the temperature dropped about 30 degrees. And all the other teams that were on the ice with us that day, the last team was walking out. They weren't even on the ice anymore. They were leaving. And so we're at the top of this climb, five, 600 feet up, and the sun goes down, temperature drops about 30 degrees like that. And uh, the moon doesn't rise. There's a million zillion stars in the sky of every single color. So we could see it was, we weren't blind, but, but there was no sun, of course, and there was no moon. And we knew we were in serious trouble immediately uh, because hypothermia started to set in immediately we started shivering violently shivering and jaws were clattering and and we hauled tim hauled up the rope it was a double rope 150 foot rope he hauled this rope up and it became a 300 foot knot and because we like went up too fast and didn't lay the right line right and and so now with the rope is a knot and in order to get it untangled i have to take my gloves off because i have to see with my fingers to feel mm. the rope you know to, to untie the soap, my started getting frostbite. So now I got, I got permanent frostbite. I still have all my digits. I'm thanking God for that. But I, I'm always, hits 50 degrees. It can hit 56 degrees in a wind or 60 in a wind. I have to have gloves on. My, everything, nose, cheeks, chin, feet, toes. Anyway, so. Wow. Yeah. So I'm, I, I never forget. I mean, I can't forget the experience of dying, but I never can forget the physical aspects of it. They're always yeah. present to me. So the sun goes down. I untangle this rope. We got rope. We have frostbite beginning. We have hypothermia, clattering jaw. We're in serious trouble. And we don't have any more food. And we don't have a sleeping bag because it's, it's a day climb. And we're soaked to the skin because it's sweaty. Mm-hmm. And we don't have super high-tech gear because that just had been invented. So we were in deep trouble. And we talked about snuggling up to the ice for the night. Um, but we decided if we were going to die, we were we were going to die if we snuggled up. There was no way we were going to live through the night because it was too cold. Mm-hmm. And so, and I, and I should mention that I'd been as a, as ski patrol th- that particular winter. There was a day that winter when it was fifty below zero on the mountain, and all day long we were treating people for hypothermia and frostbite. And so it was like right in my face. I was I was tuned up on it, and so. I can, I'm going to, I'm going to cut across to the dying part. A lot, a lot more, many more terrible things happened to us that night. 
Um, I can imagine. I mean, it's a, you were completely unprepared. You, you, this was a, just like by accident. It wasn't even supposed to go down this way. So, I mean, you, you were literally, you had nothing. We got nothing. We didn't even have, I didn't even have a Bic lighter on me. Not even if I had a Bic lighter, it would have made any difference because there's no wood. Yeah. You know, we're on the side of an ice cliff. So we were, it was, it was terrifying. I was, I was, I was terrified. But the thing, one of the reasons why I liked working with Tim, trusting him, okay, with my life for this whole trip, this, this kind of trip, you trust the person you're with, with your life every day. And I trusted him because we did, we did some hikes and skis and climbs and stuff together ahead of time. And I could see that he was like me, that he would keep a level head under desperate situation because you can't have somebody freaking out when things go wrong because because that like just makes it worse then you then you are going to die so tim was completely level-headed we were scared we were both frightened so we we roped up to each other this it's still this dark you know twilight starlight and and tim's leading we have ice we have crampons on we have ice axes we have to traverse across the face like fall you know drop down to the side 500 feet and then the dark and to the first rappel we get to the first rappel and um, we descend the first repel, but we made a mistake on that, too, because cognitively we started losing our capacity for thinking because our brains are freezing. Mm-hmm. And um, so we, instead of treating this repel correctly and using a piece of nylon webbing to put around the tree and put the rope through the nylon webbing, we decided that we put the rope around the rough bark little tree, whatever it was, spruce or pine or whatever. Uh, the problem is the rope is wet and the tree is not. The tree's frozen, so the tree the rope froze to the tree. So we descend mm-hmm. down this and at the very end of it, there's this overhead. So it's mostly like this, but then we get to the bottom and there's this, you know, 40 feet of just free fall or free space where you're repelling. And we get down to the bottom of that. And then now the rope is frozen to the tree. So we're, we're on this air, this ledge. It must be maybe 10 by 10 or something, 15 by 15. And the rope is frozen above. We can't do anything about it. And now mm-hmm. we're losing our coordination. We, it's difficult to speak. Our lips are freezing. So we can't form words. We're falling over each other. It was really bad. And um, there's more in the book. There's much more in the book. And I'll I'll just toss out, it is an audible international bestseller. So, you know, I tried to write it in such a way that it's a well-written book. So we get out of that fix. Tim Tim decides to ascend back up the rope. And so he has these knots called persics, persic hitches. And he, he climbs up a little. I could spare you that detail, too. Suffice it to say that he went up the rope part way and the rope came free. He was risking his life. He was climbing free up the rope, 100, 150 feet, in order to free the rope. That's what he was doing. But he got up maybe 30 feet, maybe 20 feet. I don't really know. It could have been 40. I'm not sure. I wasn't looking. I had the rope wrapped around me. All I know is he had met, he'd gone up some distance and suddenly he screams falling. And I roll out of the way and he falls on half on me and half on the four or five feet of snow that's still up there on that ledge. So we go off to the next rappel. Um, now it's, I don't know how many hours have gone by. Hours and hours and hours have gone by. And it's and still we, dark, right? Uh, well, the moon. Oh, okay. yeah, thank you. The moon had come up. So there was like a three-quarter moon. So it was better. All right. It was definitely, we could see better. Uh, and I should tell you that the warden, so the night before, I'll throw that in. So the night before, we spent the night at the warden's cabin, uh, just, you know, 10 miles up the road. And we signed into the wilderness log like you're supposed to. We didn't sign out of the wilderness log like you're supposed to. So he came looking for us in the middle of the night. And we were on this ledge. And he pulled into the parking lot. 
And we jumped up and down and he flashed his lights and we knew that he was there. And so we were like, somebody knows we're alive. Mm -hmm. Somebody knows we're here. So we can, and, but he can't climb up. You know, this is, this is such a sparsely populated area. I think at the time it was 1.7 people per square mile. It's like nobody. And that's, yeah. and that's over the whole, you know, that includes everybody who lives in Banff and most people do. Um, so we were heartened anyway, and we traversed over to the next rappel. And this, this rappel had a, we were off the ice on the rock with an iron pin and a ring. And we put the rope through that. And so we, we descend down the rock and Tim goes first and it's shadowy and it's a corner. So he goes down this shadowy thing and he goes around this corner. He gets on this ledge. I follow him down. I pull the rope through. We clip in, in the mountain in front of us. There are iron pins and rings and carabiners and harnesses. And now we're strapped to a, the mountain for the first time. So for the first time all night, we, we're not going to fall. Um, and so we're totally safe. And I, I tie off one end of the rope to my harness. I throw the other end of the rope out. The warden flashes his lights and drives away because we only have one rappel to go. And it's late. You know, these guys are going to be fine. So I pull on the rope. The rope gets stuck on the first pull. And now our situation went from being heartened to knowing we're going to die there because there's no I couldn't get the rope out. And I couldn't I couldn't snap the rope free because it was around the corner. So the snap ended at the corner every time. You know how that goes. Mm -hmm. And and I couldn't yank it free. It must have it must have gone into it must have wedged into a V like on the first pole somewhere. And I didn't pull much slack through with it. And so the night progressed, pulling on the rope, getting hypothermia advancing, looking at the moon move, looking at the stars move, getting colder and colder, hypothermia advancing. And it got to the place where Hours went by and I unzipped my coat, even though I know better. I felt like all of the blood was rushing to my core and I got sweaty. That's what it felt like. And I got really hot. I know that's not what happened, but that's what it felt like. Um, and I, I remember thinking, it's okay if I lose a, five fingers or a hand or an arm. At least my heart will survive. But I'm really hot. And so mm -hmm. I unzipped myself, which, of course, speeds along the whole process. And I remember having this, the, uh, as I began to fall asleep, I would fall asleep, crash, climb back up again, pull on the rope. And I remember at this one point I was standing there and I thought to myself, all right, you're falling asleep. This is over. And there's only one stage left before death. And you can't fix what's going wrong. And so I, re I remember instead of being frightened anymore, I was suddenly just accepting. I was accepting my mortality and I started thinking about God and I started thinking about my family um, and I was sorrowful that uh, my parents were going to lose another child. My sister had run away, vanished when I was a kid and broke my mom's heart in a big way and my dad and the rest of us too, me too. And I thought, well, there's nothing. I can't not take this kid. It's going to be terrible for them. And then I fell asleep and then I stood up again and then I had lost my peripheral vision and my peripheral vision went all black like a big black circle and that big black circle just faded to black really rapidly into tunnel vision and I remember looking around thinking well I'd never seen such a thing in my life I didn't understand what was going on and I, I mean I knew intellectually oh yeah one more stage but to see it was an entirely different thing and and it closed down to black and when it went black, I expected to 
fall asleep. I expect to be unconscious is really what I thought. I'll be, you know, I'll be unconscious. But I wasn't unconscious. It went and I was utterly awake. And I thought, why am I still awake? I don't remember falling to the rock. Why have it not collapsed? And then, and then I knew my eyes were shut. And I knew intellectually that I must have collapsed, but I didn't feel that. But in front of me, where the mountain felt like it should have been, it suddenly opened up into darkness. So I, I knew I had my eyes shut, and yet I could see darkness. Not like, not like a room where you are when you pull the shades and everything is black, you know, dark out shades. It, it was darkness in which I could see. And I could see into an infinity. I could just see into infinity and far, far in this infinity. Maybe, and this is everything I say is metaphor from here on out and, and, and simile and, and symbol and all the rest of that kind of stuff. Uh, and way far in the distance, as far away as the Big Bang is from us, was a pinprick of light. And that pinprick of light rushed toward me at faster than the speed of light, covering a vast distance and communicated to me intelligence, power, and the intent to take me. And it rushed toward me and it got bigger and it filled my vision. It filled everything I could see, swallowing up the darkness. And as it rushed toward me, it communicated to me directly, uh, telepathically, no language, I'm taking you. And I... I was like, no way, you're not taking me. I don't understand what's going on, but you're not going anywhere. And so mm-hmm. I took all my willpower, and I've been I've been surviving all night, like tapping into my reptilian m- mind of just survival. We we had stopped talking. I mean, we could hardly talk, but we had decided that any wasted motion, any wasted energy, was depleting our batteries, and mm-hmm. we were going to you know hasten our death. And so we were being very willful about our survival. And I, I took all of my will and I put it up as a shield and it, it mattered not at all. It just reached right through my shield and took me right out of my body. And I was out. And up, up to the mom, moment of being captured, I was strongly resistant. But once I was captured, I knew that I was in the presence of a super intelligence, of a super powerful over which I had no agency at all. I had no power whatsoever. I, and I was immediately content. I was inside of this entity, this intelligence, and I was being carried, swept, lifted into, into through this, this tunnel. But the tunnel wasn't like a narrow thing. It was a narrow thing and a wide thing at the same time. It's, it was the same infinity that somehow also had this like tunnel through the middle of it. I don't, I don't understand how the paradox works. But I was content and I just rode inside this as this entity spoke to me of comfort and wellness but not language not in language and the next thing i knew i traveled this incredible distance uh, in an instant and in the next thing i knew i was uh, this entity either expanded into all of a greater nothingness an illuminated nothingness or i popped into another nothingness it seems like i popped into this this other uh dimension, this other realm, this other reality, only this reality and this reality, uh, there was nothing. There was no thing, nothing, everything in the universe, everything we have, my glasses are like molecules and quarks and muons and all the rest of the stuff that you know, dig down into. But there was none of that. There was nothing at all. I was nothing. And I could see 
into inf uh, not all the way into infinity because that's an exaggeration but i but because infinity is too far away but i could see further than i'd ever seen before in this illuminated darkness and uh, this paradoxical place and i knew i could see myself i could see myself as very large the size 10,000 times bigger the size of i don't know what uh I don't know what, uh, an asteroid? I was huge. I was huge. And I had no materialism. There was nothing material about me. I was entirely for metaphor energy. And my energy was myself, my consciousness, my awareness, my thinking capacity, my knowledge, uh, my sensory. But I had no fingers and I had no eyeballs, but I could see in every direction every direction simultaneously. And there was no thinking in the way, no, no brain in the way of my thinking. And I realized in an instant, this is me. This is the real me. How did I, how did I forget myself? This is who I am. And I was utterly unafraid. I was content. I was home. I was, ah, self again. And then and I tell this, like I said, in a chronology, but I'm in timelessness. And it's not just the eternal now. It's all time heading in every direction, in every universe, all at once, all in one place. And, and it's, so it's always this eternal place, but all time is there. And so this a portal opened in front of me. The light appeared, uh, a gate with the pearly gates uh, whatever you want to call it, there was like an opening, a rending open in the darkness. And that darkness was light. And that light had flow to it. It was a flowing light and it was, it was transparent. I could see another tunnel through its core. It was translucent. I could see this thickness of it and, and the inside of the thickness of it. And I could see the top of it. And it was all this flowing, flowing beauty, just beauty. And the, and I was, I don't want to say compelled, because that's not quite the, I was, I, I was attracted. I was, I, I wanted to touch this with all of my being. And so I reached with it, with my consciousness. And when I touched it, it was alive. And it was alive with a capital A. It was all life everywhere in everything, the entire universe, all life. And it flowed into me. I went into it and it flowed into me and it surrounded me and it filled this this nothingness I was in, and 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 then all these things happened at once. I heard I heard my soul name called the not Peter, but the but the origin, the creation of my the very being of myself, and I could see myself as if I were a, a photon, uh, in in a superposition. I was I was a wave and a particle. I was both part of these ten zillion other photons that made up the the totality of the oneness of being. I was exactly like another photon, but I was a separate photon, and I was a created creature made by this entity of light. And I was light from light, and my name was the calling of my soul into being. And it it was eons old, eons and eons old. And I could see the eons of length of my life, the width and the breadth and the depth of my soul life. And I could see these other sort of slices into my soul life that were other lives I had lived or was living because I was in timelessness. And even when I was there, I couldn't tell. I could see into these other universes that my lives of the lives I was living. But that knowledge was taken from me when I came back. 
Now all I know is that I had lived these lives and there were many of them, but not one of them was me. The only me there was, was the created self made by creator, the soul essence of me. All these other parts of me, they weren't the totality of me. They were very much less than me. And, and I went through, I, I knew that I was known. And my, my Peter, the part of me that was Peter, made an appearance. And that part of me that was Peter uh, was known by the knower. So not only was I simultaneously shown the origin of myself and these other lives, I also was shown my, the totality of my entire lived life as Peter up to that point in my life review. But my life review, and most, most NDEers, but not everybody, most NDEers, many NDEers go through a life review. And you want me to keep going, Sean? I, I don't yeah, want Yeah, no, I'm, uh, just, okay. I'm, right. I'm, I'm fascinated by what you're saying. And for those that don't know what an NDE is, is that a near, that's a near-death experience um, person that's experienced near-death. Yeah, that, that's what it is. Yep, and, and thank you. And uh, so a lot of NDEers, near-death experiencers, have life reviews. And mine was... I went through all of the pain that I gave away in my life from the point of view of the person I gave it to. So all the karma that I get, all the sin, all the pain that I gave to anybody attached to me. It didn't attach to them. I felt it from their point of view, all the nasty things I did to my sisters, because, you know, I was only 21 years old. Most of my life was with my sisters. Um, all the things I did to my sisters, and I thought it was a little tiny hurt to them. It turned out to be a humongous hurt to them much larger than I had conceived of in my life. Didn't have any idea how, how large the pain was that I caused. And that pain had accrued to me. And so when I experienced my life review, I saw the pain I gave them from inside of their lives and felt the magnified pain that I gave them. And, and, just, and I, I experienced juxtaposed to that, all of the suffering, uh, pardon me, all of the judgments I had made deciding to cause them their pain. And I judged myself as, as, as guilty, guilty and shameful. And so I, I judged myself. But meanwhile, while this was going on and I was being shown this and experienced this in this very interior sort of way, I, could, I had two perspectives. I had the perspective, three perspectives. I had the perspective of the person I hurt, the perspective of my uh, judgments that caused the pain. And I could see this from outside myself. I could see like see this happening to me and this voice with no sound was saying inside of me this light was saying I love you I know you I've always known you there was nothing of you that's ever been hidden from me I have known you I have experienced your life with you I love you as you are I love you I love you I forgive you I forgive you I love you I forgive you and 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 and, and at the same time I'm seeing all of humanity I'm seeing all of humanity's inhumanity to humanity as not their fault because we didn't make the universe. Creator made the universe and we are in this universe. And, and although I was guilty for the willful actions of causing pain, I wasn't guilty for having made the matrix in the first place. And so this, so I saw this, I saw this great equality of all of the pain that human beings cause each other not in comparison to my pain that I caused somebody or, you know, Paul Potts pain that he caused a whole bunch of people. Um, but all of those, all humanity in comparison to purity, 
and in comparison to purity, the measurement was we are all nothing. And purity is all everything. And the love was so vast, it far outweighed all of the impurities of humanity, no matter who we were. And so I was utterly forgiven. And when I was forgiven, I, I took all of, the, all of the love that I had taken with me in life. I also took home with, took with me to heaven. Um, and all of the love I'd given away was mine too. And so I, with this love that was living inside me and seeing the equality of humanity and seeing the purity of the divine and hearing the forgiving love and mercy of this voice speaking inside me, I turned to the divine light and was then infilled with it. I was infilled and expanded like a balloon. And I was filled with beauty, love, truth, knowledge, understanding, wholeness, healing, bliss, adoration, awe, um, knowledge. And I knew that I could know anything that I wanted to know. And I wanted to know all about the cosmos. I wanted to understand all about astronomy and physics and how the whole, I wanted to know how the whole thing was put together. And in an instant, I knew. In an instant, I understood all of how it was all put together to the capacity that my soul was able to understand infinity, which is not in totality. So even though I was in this state of the of union, of oneness of being, I was still less than infinity. But my unitive state of being was so filled with the divine light that Peter vanished. I was only in adoration. I was in this higher frequency buzz. And then that quieted down some. And I said to the voice, am I dead? And the voice said, yes, you're dead. And I said, but you know, I don't think I'm done down there yet. My parents are suffering and I'm taking another child from them. Now that I've seen this, um, maybe I can go back. And the voice took me like, you know, grabbed me by the scruff of the collar sort of thing and flew me across the universe at the speed of thought to the very edge. Uh, and when I say, so when I say this thing flew me across the universe, it is heaven. It's like, there's no differentiation. This being is infinity and I was in the middle of infinity and it was personally present to me and yet it was infinitely more than that. And so when it grabbed me by the scruff of the collar and dragged me through through heaven, it was grabbing itself and dragging itself through itself to see itself. It's the totality of all there is. And so I was on the edge of heaven with this differentiation of, of not being the totality anymore, now somehow a separate piece. And I could see where heaven ended, where the realm of that dimensionality ended my this in this higher physics, maybe say, I don't know. And looking down, I could see the earth like a hologram. I could see every seven billion people on the earth as individuals, not like I'm looking at you, Sean, and then I'm looking over here at this and I'm looking at that. It was like I could see everybody all at once. I had enough capacity, visuals and brain or, or intellect not brain to on to see every action of every human being as i looked doing everything they were doing and i could see every single one was covered by a veil and the veil i knew was symbolic and the and the voice which was the entire universe the larger those all of heaven who spoke said past future and present in the in the eternal now said 
in the way that I love you now, I have always loved you. This love is a seven gazillion times greater than I can tell you, Sean. It is. It, it was the totality of all the universe. The universe, it was all of heaven is love itself. And it always was, is, and always will be. And that's how much love I love you, me, me, this soul. I love you that much. And I love every single human being in the same way with my infinite loving holy whole wholeness healing and holiness and and because of my love you see now all is well all has been well and all will be well for you and for everyone because of my love nothing is lost so you can come home now you don't need to go deal with your parents in a in the, the wink of a human eye your parents will be dead and they'll be in this wholeness and healing. You'll be, they'll be here before you know it. And I said, yeah, but I, can, I could see their faces, my parents in particular, and their suffering. I could see the length of their life without me in their faces. And I could, without me, and I could see the length of their life with me in their faces. And one was less than the other. And so I said, um, so I'm traveling in a theater company, and I'm leaving on tour, and I made this promise, and I can't ditch the company. That's my other reason why I, I have to go back to life. And uh, the voice ignored that. And I said, well, I haven't gone all the way into you yet. And the voice said, no, you haven't. I want you to, but you can choose as you get a choice. And I said, well, if I go back to my life, can I come back here to this, you, this, this infinite love? This oneness of being, this unity that's incomprehensible here. Um, and the voice said, yes. And I said, well, I choose to live my life. And the voice said, you won't live your life. And sent me back. And on the way back, I had to make a choice. I had a million entry points back into my, back into my life. I had a million choices to make. And in the center of the million choices was the purity of the divine light itself. And then it, it, it faded as it went out to all, to all these other entry point choices. And I could see the, I could see all the probabilities all at once. And I picked one. And I didn't pick the center light. I picked one where I could live sort of a, a, a creative life. Uh, with some bohemianness in it. And I remember having that thought. And, and then in an instant, I was, because I was studying poetry and I was in theater and I wanted, you know. And the next thing I knew, I was being crushed like a metal, like a truck compactor, crushed down and from a much larger size. And then I felt like I was being screwed into my body very painfully, twist by twist by twist. And my body, this thing, this thing was alien to me. And when I was inside this thing, it, I, I suddenly, I had forgotten pain. I had forgotten suffering. It, it wasn't like I forgot, oh, I forgot where I left my ticket yesterday. Uh, it never existed. Suffering never existed for me before. It was gone. And now it was there and it was awful and everything hurt. And I swam to consciousness over some period of time and my I was I, I came to consciousness well, I, I came to awareness when I realized my body was being shaken and I heard all this noise and eventually I, I came to my senses enough that I could hear and my body started to work and I was able to stand and my partner Tim was screaming at me you were dead screaming crying blubbering you were dead if you died I died because it was bad <clears throat> and um, then I stood up and after some period of time i was completely disoriented i can't explain to you how disoriented i was it was like it was like somebody 
here's an analogy. It was like I'm from I'm from the sixth century and suddenly I get stuffed in a space suit and sent up to the Skylab. And I nobody nobody speaks my language, nobody explains what's going on. I have no idea how I got here or what's going on. It was sort of like that. I was completely alien in my own body. Uh, I didn't understand how my body worked or my mind worked. Um, and that lasted a very long time. That lasted a long, long time. I had to, we self-rescued. Okay, so back to the mountain. The rope came free on the first pull. We descended, the car was right across the street in the parking lot. So we went over and we got the tent first aid, you know, Boy Scout can't heat up in the car, got to bring your body up to temperature. So we self-treated with hypothermia till after hours after the sun came up and um, an hour, maybe two hours. And then um, we got in the car and heated ourselves up in the car when we were warm enough to do that. And then at some point the warden showed up and asked us if we were the, are you the boys who run the mountain last night? Yes, sir. So I came down to see if I had to get the helicopter to get your bodies this morning. It's like, oh, okay. <laughs> so, and then it just, so that's just the experience. The near-death experience does not end. Okay, that was the experience part. I live with this every day. I don't, not just my physical stuff, but it's, I never always, I never fully came back. It's, I've spent my life reintegrating. They, they say, the studies show, it takes seven years to get reintegrated. I spent 20 years. More, it's been close to 40 years now. I'm still working on it. So I'm going to stop there, Sean. I've talked for 40 minutes or so, half an hour. So I'm yeah. going to stop and let you say what you want. All right. Well, we have a, uh, a, a comment from uh, the, the people that are watching, and this is uh, Leslie Levinson. And uh, he says, hello, gentlemen. That's true life awakening, self-awareness, and deep spiritual connection. Do you think people need to see life or death to make a decision to live? No, but it helps. A lot of people I know who have not had near-death experiences but who have come close to their mortality, they get cancer, they're in a terrible car wreck, whatever it is, they definitely have a sense of their mor mortality and, and often want to live a very vibrant life as a result. But no, I mean, I've got lots of buddies who are uh, adrenaline junkies. They like to live a, a, an exciting life. You can live, you can decide to live your life for your children because your children give you that new life. Lots of reasons for that. You don't, you don't need a near-death experience to experience the divine, and you don't need one to want to live um, to, to your fullest. But it helps. Yeah. So what would you... What would you say is the lasting effect from that? The the biggest thing, the, the takeaway from that, and the, the the that you brought with you that helps you keep going on. I mean, I feel like you've you've been to the other side. You've seen something that nobody else has seen. You've experienced something that nobody else has experienced. Um, does that play into any of the decisions you make today? Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah, every day, every choice. It's like, yes, good question. Um, yeah, the the lasting impact is that I have an entirely new perspective. I, I, it's not like I'm. I described it early on as being in a in a a silent black and white film when I came back. That's what the world was like for me, and I'd been to Colorland, Technicolor Land, or or you know now we've got. Uh, uh, 
goggles, you know, three-dimensional goggle vision. That's where I was. And now I'm back in silent film land. And so my perspective is always from this other place. And so uh, the first thing I guess I did uh, in a major, the major choice I made is I didn't go into my long life, my lifelong career. I was an English major, but I was going to architecture graduate school to join the family firm. I'd been pushing a pencil my whole life. And I, you know, worked in construction to know the job from the inside out. But I, I was like, I can't do that now. I've got to, I've got, so I went to divinity school and I didn't went, went to divinity school, my shocking my family and everybody around me, you know, aren't you, you know, we're going to build skyscrapers, you know, what are you, what are you doing? Um, now I got to go this, this, and I couldn't, I, I kept it a secret. And so, yeah, it informed big decisions. It informed small decisions. I've got a, <laughs> I have bought an acre of land that I live on. And um, when my, I let it go to microhabitat, most of it, I've got five, 15 types of butterflies and seven types of bees and dragonflies and fish. And, and I had a moose in my yard and I get mink walking through. And, and my, but my, my son's buddies who all went to the local high school is like, what's with your dad? Why doesn't he, he doesn't mow his yard. It's just all full of weeds. And I'm like, no, that's not a weed. That's a goldenrod. And that's a, this. And, and so I created this sanctuary for myself um, so that I can nature bathe. And so I, I make lots of decisions, daily decisions based on my eternal nature, not on my physical nature, because I am, I am utterly not this. I live in this thing. My consciousness inhabits this thing. And this is, I've spent my whole life, my whole career, my whole personal life in pursuit on a daily basis, practicing um, centering prayer, Kriya Yoga, Hatha Yoga, uh, spiritual reading. I I got ordained in a denomination in order to hide out in the church so that I could could serve people um, with love. But also I could study and, and practice my prayer and nobody would suspect that I was what I was doing on my interior world. Uh, so economic decisions, uh, location decisions, social decisions, cultural decisions, interpersonal decisions, everything. There's nothing. Uh, there's nothing about it that I do that is not informed by it. And I'm not alone in that. Those of us who come back, there are 10 million of us in the United States, at least. Uh, because of cardiac care and we're all living like this to varying degrees my experience was pretty far out there i've come to learn in the past five years since i've come out of the closet about this and in a big way that my experience is not unique but rare Mm. and um and for people like me in particular who've been to the place of non-being and in the fullness of the darkness and filled with the oneness of being uh, our perspective is like, this ain't home. Mm-hmm. I'm passing through here. I'm going to have as much fun as I can and do as much good as I can for as many people as I can in the meanwhile. But I can't wait to go home. Wow. So I I've, uh, I believe that we're energy. You know, our consciousness and everything is we're just we're energy beings and we all are connected in some way, shape or form. Yep. Um. I, and I, that's just how I feel just because of some of the things that I've been through in my life. I don't know. I mean, I, I, you know, almost OD'd a couple of times, I, but every time that that happened, I was, you know, so far out of my mind anyways, that I didn't, wouldn't have ex- known what I was experiencing, whether it was the drugs or if it was a, you know, an experience. And my, my question is, is 
knowing what you know, how, like, is there hope? Hope for what? For humanity. Oh, yeah, I think there is hope for humanity. I think for the first time in the history of the world, there might be hope for humanity. And why do I say that? Because for the first time in the history of the world, th- um, there are science has is raising the dead by the tens of millions all over the world, creating mystics. And we're, we're, we're now in the process, we're in the stage where we're discovering, did everybody come back with the idea of love or did they not? And so far, yeah. So far as we, as I can tell, as I talk to all these ND ears, love is the dominant theme. It doesn't matter whether you're Zoroastrian or Muslim or atheist or, you know, scientist or Christian. It doesn't matter because on the other side, there are no, there's no religion. This continuance of life back in the, in the fullness of being. And so for the first time in history, humanity is has survived for, we'll say, 100,000 years since we started, you know, teaming up together in tribes, say, uh, we've survived through tribalism. That's, you know, my group and your group. And we, now we've filled the earth and we're, we're shoulder to shoulder and, you know, we're running out of land now because the seas are rising and, you know, all sorts of terrible things are, are we've created or there are happening. And, and so the good news is, as we are pushing into the smaller and smaller territory with potential... Um, natural disasters resulting from the from what's going on on the planet um we have this other thing going on and this other thing going on is that there are there are tens of millions of of if you imagine fiber optic cables that all originate in one power source of energy and that cable i mean i've got a little fiber optic node sticking in my heart and my little light is shining here and i look over there and there's another one like me who was brought back from the dead. And then more than us, more than the near-death experiencers, there are people who have had mystical experiences of of 10 dozen different kinds. Mm -hmm. And they're not able to talk about it because it's taboo. Society says, no, you can't talk about these things. And now, first time in the history of the world, all these NDEs are coming back. We're like, no, we're on a mission. We're all on a mission. Every one of us, we all have our individual mission that we're doing. And what we're doing collectively is raising the voice of love and the possibility for discussion that humanity really is one. And it's not just that we're born of the same DNA and we know it's mixed, Denovosian and Neanderthal and whatever, you know, but that thing that unites us, this energy that unites us, that's a tangible thing to me. That is not something that's theoretical in my life. Uh, it, it is the, the life force energy that I perceive in every single person I meet. And it's either I see it with my hands and this radiance around them, or I see it with my eyes and the shimmer around them, or I sense it with my soul and the energy around them or inside them. There's all these different mechanisms of perception for me that are as real to me as, you know, seeing the color brown. Or, you know, put my finger in a fire and it burning me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's a lot of us walking around like that. And we're all, we're all, so my hope for humanity is that, you know, maybe we can shatter, maybe we can shatter the stories we tell ourselves about our separateness 
and and find inside ourselves. And here's how this works for me: is the deeper I go inside myself and my and my prayer practice and my meditation practice and my yoga practice, the larger my capacity becomes on the inside for the radiant divine to have a a space inside me because I'm I'm killing my false self my dualistic mind, my my egoistic self, I slowly, breath after breath after breath, carve another bit of that away, creating this capacity, which gives me the ability to see the light inside myself. And when I see, now that I see the light inside myself, I see it in other people. You see it in other people when you look in their eyes. This isn't a special capacity to me. When you look in someone's eyes, if you look in the eyes of someone who dies, if you're ever in the presence of someone who dies, as they're dying, watch their eyes. You'll see the light go out. You'll see that happen. And you see the light in people's eyes all the time. The light, capital T, capital L, the light sees itself. The light in me sees the light in you. My 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 life review wasn't because you know someone was up there some some angelic scribe was writing down taking you know peering down on the on the monitor watching what i was doing because the divine is in me experiencing life with me mm. there's no separation and that's true for everybody and because and when you strip away enough of the false self you get to see the light in everyone else it doesn't matter it, they can be your enemy your real life enemy and i've had real life enemies who tried to take me down in my in my life i could still see the light in them and and, and no matter who they were or what they did it didn't change that and so even even as they tried to ruin my career i could still love them not for who they were as a person but for the light inside them and that's really the source of the biggest change inside of me is that by aiming my the interior eye of myself back at where I came from, I brought that here with me in small degree in comparison. But the more I aim my heart at the divine oneness of being, the more that is present inside of me, the more the radiance lives in my life and creates serendipities. Mm -hmm. uh, or, uh, and, and, um, but more importantly, brings light to other people that they might find it inside themselves and maybe the hope for humanity is that for the first time in the history of the world there's enough of us walking around like this that maybe we can together find a way to see each other as human being instead of objectifying mm -hmm. Um, and so I have hope. I do. I have hope. But my true hope, my real hope isn't in here. It's not in this life. My true hope, my strength comes from the fact that I know that I'm going to die and I get, and, and there is no death. Uh, and the death is just a continuation of my life. I've already experienced it twice. Uh, it's a continuation of my life. And so I'm fearless about it. And um, my, I do have hope for humanity. But mostly, I have hope for the souls of humanity. Mm -hmm. well, that's, that was a great way to explain it. <clears throat> One question. I, we have another question from uh, Leslie, but I'm going to ask something. So you said something about karma, and all of your karma came at you, and you know you felt what what 
you had put onto other people or the experiences of, you know, ego that was projected onto others, you felt that back in fold, you know, what yeah. that was like. Now, when you came back out and you said, you know, you specifically mentioned your sisters. Now, did you, when you came back and, you know, in this new perspective, did you, um, like, did you go and make amends with them? And, and like, what, what was that relationship like afterwards? Well, I have, I have two sisters and, um, one of them was still gone. Mm -hmm. So there was no making amends there. Mm -hmm. Eventually long, long story things further down the road. Yes. Uh, to a certain extent, but I kept this a secret. I didn't come back and tell people what happened to me. Okay. And, and I kept that, a, I kept that a secret for 20 years. Cause I, I, I knew, I knew how crazy it would sound. And so, cause I was well enough read, you know, to know that and lived enough life to know that, you know, you don't go around saying this kind of shit to people. Yeah. So uh, what I did instead um, and, and I, and I got this from my parents a couple of years ago, I asked my parents, I said, so, you know, remember that summer I came back and now that you know about this, did you notice anything different about me? And my dad says, yeah, well, your mother and I were talking and, uh, yeah, we did, but you, you were, we talked about it. We remarked that you were kind, you were considerate, you were compassionate in ways, not that you weren't before Pete, you were, you were, but this was different. And really, that's how I did it. That's how I made up with everybody. I, I, I'd already been forgiven for everything I had done. I didn't need forgiveness anymore because I'd already been forgiven. Mm -hmm. But what I, but what I could do is going forward, as best as I'm able to, give, you know, I'm still a guy. I'm still a human being. I still make mistakes. I still say stupid things. I still do stupid things. Um, but to live as best I can with as much compassion as I can um, and and provide my whole my the whole purpose of my life since then has been trying to help my um, my parents cope with the loss of my sister mm -hmm. and the family dynamics that arose from that. And that's been it's I, I think overall we've been successful. My folks are are both uh, very elderly now and their time on earth is not very long years maybe or less we don't know um, but they've done a lot of emotional healing and they're there is well i well i can't say that they are looking forward to it because they don't have the perspective i have um they're more at peace than they've ever been with their lives that the, the way things turned out mm -hmm. so well thanks for answering that uh, let's get to this question. So Leslie asks, Reverend Peter, how you see our world in the future with technology and business growth? Is it possible to more simple, loving, humble human existence with compassion and love? How we are going to make a change in the present matrix government biz control? Well, um, I, I, <laughs> I can't, I can't tell you what's going to happen in the future with, uh, uh, with government and business control, but uh, but I can say that the more of us that fill our hearts with light and love, the more likely uh, we are to treat each other humanely and with love. And so my goal isn't to create um, a new world order. My goal is my goal is to create help people find a new heart order 
individually. And uh, but I also think there's a wild card out there that I want to toss in here, which might come as a surprise, Sean um, and and Leslie is. I don't know if you've been following what's going on in the Pentagon in the past like two years and UFOs um, and the data that's coming out in the next month that they're releasing. Um, we're not alone. And we haven't been alone for a long time. And when we just, when humanity, humanity has lived under the illusion, the false truth that we are different tribes. And all our tribes have stories. You get you get your Muslim end of the world story. You get your Christian end of the world story. You get your Buddhist end of the world story. You get your Hindu end of the world story. You've got warring religions against each other for thousands of years based in the stories we tell ourselves about who we are. And who are we? We are one humanity. Mm-hmm. And when, 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 when we find out that we are one little planet and a galaxy of other sentient beings, it's going to do a lot of shattering to our self-image and it and when our it's going to ruin our creation stories it's going to ruin our end time stories and when all those stories get shattered what's going to be left well maybe maybe what's going to be left is the truth of love and it doesn't really need another story maybe what it all all it really needs is a bunch of people having their own individual stories of uh, their their they're like science has been creating, you know, psychonauts and and um, and psychedelics and astronauts in space. Well, science has been making near deathonauts, sending us off into the great into the great void, and we're coming back with messages from the other side. And um, and the message isn't about government or, or love. Uh, pardon me, the government or business. The, the message is about the human heart and the relationship to each other. And nothing is gonna heal in humanity because we've, we've been the same for 100,000 years. Until this thing changes, we're, until our egoic minds cease to rule the day, what chance do we have? Um, so that's where I'm at with all of that. Uh, I, I, I don't know if that answers your question, Leslie. And I see, I wanted to expand your thoughts, Sean. I, I, go ahead, Sean, I'll be quiet. Oh, yeah, yeah, no. He says, I love your spiritual practice and vision for humanity. We may want the same. I don't know, or I don't see how, as human beings, we all can think like you are doing, where most of us are trying our best to enjoy who and what we love every day. It's uh, a really good point. It's a really good point. <laughs> really good point. I don't think you need to be like us. Um, I think that love is, is baked into human DNA. And, and, and nobody needs to spend their life in meditation or in yoga or they don't need to spend their life doing anything. All, you know, just love the ones you're with. Love the people you're around. Love, allow yourself to be loved. Um, but I think that the, the shattering of the stories that we tell ourselves will have social implications. I think that society itself will change as a result. But every person, every single person, let me explain it this way. Every single person has stories that they tell themselves about who they are. It's the stories that run in our heads. I'm, you know, I'm a white guy. I went to this school. I do this for a work, for a living. I have that for supper. I eat this for breakfast. All these stories we tell ourselves about that define our lives. Well, in, in a collective, in a society, we're a group of those individual minds all telling ourselves similar stories and some of our stories overlap the judeo-christian story the muslim story the story of genesis the whatever your story is um there are societal stories and those are the stories that are going to get cracked open and when mm-hmm. those stories get cracked open there's going to be need to be something to rush in to to fill that void and i'd like that 
to be love. I'd, I'd like, I think Jesus was right. Love thy neighbor as thyself. Love God above all things. That is the summation of the law. That is the summation of everything. And you don't need to be a Christian to believe that. All you need to do is love your kids. All you need to do is love your neighbor. Uh, care for the person that you don't know, the stranger. Um, it doesn't take any sort of... Some of, the, some of the best Christians I know are atheists. Mm -hmm. um, because they live love without you know, belief getting in the way. Um, yeah, I, I really think that, you know, we are on a trajectory of change. And a lot of that comes from, you know, mo a lot of people are waking up to the fact that, you know, as you pull away from mainstream media and stop listening to to this narrative that we are different and that, you know, all the things that divide us and all the tactics that are being used to divide us, because if we're divided, then, then they, they win. They win. Right? And, you know, the more that we allow them to do that and then whoever you want to call them is, um, you know, and I think that these are the folks that that know our history and know, you know, where we came from and what we are, because we don't because we've been told one thing, but reality shows us completely different things from the fact that we have telepathy from the fact that, you know, when I think about somebody, it's, is it a coincidence that they call me two days later? Yeah, uh, is right. it, you know what I mean? That we have these abilities that have been sort of suppressed And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that, um, you know, it's the, the EMF that's all around us that keeps us from being able to use the abilities to the fullest extent that we have them. Cause I know that when I go above, you know, I go into the mountains where I have none of that, there's no power lines, there's no anything up there that that clarity and the ability to, to, communicate in that way gets a lot stronger and you know I, I i really believe that you know the key is disconnecting from mainstream media stop watching the news stop being traumatized by all of these these things that are being flashed at you constantly wham 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 shut off your tv shut off yep. your phone stop reading the news yeah and you know we are alike we are so much alike that you know from our biology to our functions to all of the different systems in our in our bodies i mean they're all the same yep. the only difference is environment and how we how we were raised and you know and the traumas that we've dealt with through that but that that you know what i hear from you is that the universe is is in all of us all of us and you know we are from all of the elements around us, we are everything. And as much as I didn't think I was going to be able to follow you through the, the, the euphemisms and everything else that you were talking about, I completely followed everything that you were saying. And like, I don't even know how, it's like, <laughs> you know what I mean? It made sense, even though it didn't make sense. That's because, because the, because, because it's not about the, Storytelling is, is a, a, a well-told story. Storytellers rule the world. That's, that's what, you know, the media people, they're telling stories. Movies, they tell stories. I'm a storyteller, but the, what's encased inside the story is what really carries it for me. It's mm -hmm. the, I try to weave the light inside everything that I do. And I, I, I use this as an example. Cezanne, the famous painter Cezanne, mm -hmm. painted the same mountain over and over again. That was his meditation. 
That was his meditation. That's how he did that. He put he put this meditation into his paints, and he left a lot of white space on the on the canvases of for emptiness. There was emptiness, a lot of emptiness in his paintings, and and you can a, a poet can uh, a musician, a lyricist, a, a painter. Uh, a, a carpenter, a baker, you can, you can put the energy of your love into objects. And I know that that sounds uh, woo woo, but, mm. but I found, I, I did television for 15 years and I was on camera almost every day and, and telling sacred stories and I, uh, that I wrote. And I found that if I, if I cleared myself out of the way, whatever story I told, if I cased it in light and love it went through the lens into the ears into the heart into the soul and i heard from people from my audience we had you know it was nbc stations it was like the news station mm -hmm. and and i had a special role and but i would hear from people that, that my two-year-old stops when when they hear your voice you know everybody in the house stops what they're doing and we don't even have to hear what you're saying we just want to hear your voice and the and the and the the reason for that is is that the light itself you can project it you can give it away and um why am i telling you this because anybody can do it everybody does it every time you hold the hand of someone you love and you feel that thing it's not just chemicals it's your soul touching mm. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, and, and the way the, the way you see that, I mean, is you see that with your your children, you know, when the mother when when your 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 the mother of your child is breastfeeding, and you know, skin contact makes contact, and all of a sudden they start lactating. Yeah. It's I mean, we we are we we're we're this this thing, man. We're we're. Yes it's in, I don't know, man, I can't explain it, but I, I understand it. And, and, and it's only because I've seen certain things and experienced certain things that, that this doesn't sound crazy to me, you know, nothing that you said sounds crazy to me. So, I mean, you know, well, let's get to Leslie's uh, uh, thing here. He said, I hope and pray you, Peter, are, I hope and pray you, Peter, you are right about the new world order of love and compassion and unity. Thank you, Peter and Sean, bringing us together with this enlightened spiritual perspective based on love, compassion, unity, inspiring us to have positive outlook every day and strong spiritual belief and practice. Very inspiring. Thank you, Leslie. And Leslie and I had a long conversation uh, yesterday. Um, uh, he reached out and asked if I was available to speak. I have, I didn't know who he was. And, you know, we had a conversation just because I, just what I do. Sometimes I'll just talk to random people, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and it's, it, it's inspiring, um, to, to be able to connect with folks. And I think when we come through where we, don't know everything because we don't know everything we don't know everything <laughs> we don't know anything no. ignorance, <laughs> our ignorance is much larger than our knowledge exactly and you know when you can shed that ego and that's really what stands in the way of everything is you you who you are and the stories that you tell yourself and the narrative that you laid in your head and that you believe that's the only thing that holds you back yep you know once you can get past that and start seeing you know, the, the similarities instead of the differences, uh, then you will truly be alive. Yep. And, and you'll help others live too. 
Yeah, exactly. And, you know, that's kind of, you know, once I started doing this podcast and, and, and got out of, out of self and, you know, and sometimes I struggle, you know, I mean, I'm not perfect, Nobody you know, is. and, you know, I struggle with, with that and, you know, but I always find my way back to it and they're like, okay, all right, well, why are we doing this? You know, is this, am I in, in the right space? Am I, am I, you know, aligned with what I'm trying to do and, and not doing this for, for ego and doing this for the betterment of everybody else and trying to tell other people's stories. And, you know, we, we really resonate and this is, this is where we connect as people in our suffering more than our, than our winning. Oh right? yeah, for sure. We do. You know, that's how we connect. And that's why I think podcasts like mine and others and others that just tell stories of, you know, struggle and strife and comeback stories and, and all of those things. That's why they're so popular because people resonate with, with, with the losses more than they do the wins. Sure. Everybody yeah. knows what it's like to hit themselves with a hammer. No, <laughs> that's a good, that's a good way to put it. Um, so yeah, I, I, we're at an hour and 12 and, uh, you know, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Um, and you know, do you have any, uh, closing, uh, thoughts? I mean, you know, the one, one thing I, what, what was the one thing that made you come out about this? I know you said you did like 20 years, you were afraid to talk about it. You know, why did you come out? Uh, well, at the end of my book, you can see what happened, but in, uh, in brief, there was a, I was a minister of a swanky, uh, church in a resort town, a resort coastal town along the coast of Maine. And there was a large, there was a couple of large embezzlements going on in town. And one of them was in the church I was in, uh, leading and it lasted a long time. It was decades long and it was two tiered. And by the time we finally uncovered the truth, the, these enemies of mine that I mentioned, mm -hmm. uh, they they were colluding with the criminal um, uh, who she's all's forgiven now, by the way, we're, we're all's good. And um, but at the time it was bad. So when it was all over, they tried to ruin my career and destroy me and, and, and run me out of town and all sorts of stuff. Just, you know, wreck me financially. Powerful people, not. This is a resort town. These are powerful people. Mm -hmm. And uh, when it was all over, after we'd prosecuted and she'd gone to jail and I, I was, I had endured all of the, because they kept trying to control me. They kept trying to stop me from looking. Mm -hmm. And um, so when it was all over, on one Sunday morning, uh, one of the deacons came up to me and said, you know, Peter, we're so sorry for what we did to you for all these years and how we treated you. Uh, you must have had a lot of faith to put up with us the way you did, because it was bad. I mean, we made statewide news, and we were also New England news, but we were like headline in the state. And uh, so I decided that Sunday morning to toss out my sermon because I had to finally tell them that I'd been lying to them for the entire time I'd been their minister, because I'd been saying that I was a believer, and I am not a believer. Mm -hmm. I am. I, I know that the, I know heaven is real. It's like. Um, I know that my glasses are physical. Right? Mm -hmm. I don't have to believe in that. And to me, that's with the way the divine is. It's real and physical and uh, actual and much larger than the universe and, and myself. And so I, I decided on that Sunday morning that they trusted me enough after all we'd gone through, that they loved me enough that I could finally tell them the truth. 
uh, that, that the reason why I was able to endure all the pain that they gave me and suffering as they tried to, you know, run me out of town and ruin me um, was because I died mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and you can't hurt me. You know, you hurt me, right? But you can't touch my soul. Yeah, you, yeah. you can't kill the truth of me. Um, and that's where my strength lies. And so that's why I came out in the first place. And I came out with this book because I was working in Manhattan um, for this TV show. And uh, and the, the and the network I was working with, uh, they, they caught wind of it. And they're like, you should do this. I write this book. I'm like, I don't know. And we'll produce your book trailer. So if you go and you find my book trailer, mm-hmm. it was actually produced two years before the book was published, before I even wrote it. Mm. And that was the incentive so for coming out that way. But that's why it all came out. People pressured me into it um, because the story would might do some good. That's yeah. why it came out public in a big public way. Yeah, everybody's story has the potential of saving somebody's life. Oh, totally true. You know, and you know, you're you're doing a crime if you're 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 not helping humanity if you're hiding yourself. Yep. Um, what well, one last question? It just came to me, and we'll, then we'll wrap this up. Um, okay. Do you believe the story of evolution? No. Yes, of course I do. <laughs> <laughs> that we that we that we evolved from monkeys. Uh, I think that we evolved from protozoa. I think that that uh, the 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 record, the his, the historical record, uh, is showing both in the paleontological digs that they're finding bones, but, mm-hmm. but also more particularly in the DNA studies mm-hmm. that, yeah, we're, we're just a, a blip of a species that evolved on this planet. Um, and do we have a future as a species? Well, maybe if we survive, mm-hmm. maybe we'll evolve into something else, but we might not survive. Lots of species have not survived. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think that we're, I think that we've evolved um, partly uh, because of the, of the historical record. I mean, mostly because of that. Um, and science is this great thing that if it's wrong, it says so. Unlike religion, if religion's wrong, they don't say so. Science mm-hmm. like, we got this wrong. There's new information. Oh, okay. Well, now they're talking about, I don't know if you've been following what's going on in Mars, uh, but one of the, our uh, astrobiology you know, maybe an asteroid hit Mars and knocked off some protozoa that traveled to Earth that sparked life here, or maybe vice versa. Mm. You know, interplanetary spreading of of uh, bacterial matter or or life—it's that's not inconceivable. So, you know, did that influence our, our human evolution? I have no idea, but I think we're going to find out. I think that the we don't know everything yet, and. But evol- we're watching evolution live time right now on Earth with COVID. You know, the, the, this virus is evolving. Uh, and like all good entities, it evolves for its own benefit. Mm-hmm. So it's a it's a damn good virus. You know? Uh, yeah, I feel I, I feel like we're hybrids. We're hybrids from an alien, an alien. Uh... Well, we'll sign. We'll find that out. Maybe we are. <laughs> um, I, you know, I, I had, I had a UFO experience um, when I was in, uh, 18 years old. It lasted an hour. Um, we chased this thing, and I saw it do incredible physics. I know we're not from here. I know that they've been coming here for a long time. 
uh, with it, you know, in the same way that the Neanderthals were fooling around with the Homo sapiens, mm-hmm. um, you know, maybe the aliens were fooling around with the Denovosians. We don't, I don't know yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but if, if there's DNA in us that uh, it'll show up, we'll figure this out. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't need to know all those answers myself. Yeah, I don't, I don't either. I'm just, I just, I just think about things. Sometimes I think about things a little too much. <laughs> well, you know, if you're not, if you're not thinking, that's trouble. Yeah. All right. Well, Peter, I really appreciate it. And if you want to find Peter, uh, you can go to his website. I have it right up here. It's uh, peterpangor.love. Uh, and he's also got a documentary that is free on uh, Amazon. If you're on Amazon Prime in some areas, and if you can't get it there, which in my area, I couldn't get it there, uh, I'm going to go and check it out on YouTube. Um, you know, documentary Life to Life to Afterlife, Death and Back to. So that's you can check those out as well. And all of the direct links are available, like I said, in the description. And they'll be available in the show notes as well when this uh, airs on publishes on the podcast platforms in about five weeks. So look forward to that if you're, you know, if you follow me that way. If not, then uh, you can watch this back again. It's on five different uh, <laughs> platforms um, and locations uh, from here. So uh, anything more you want to say, Peter? I just I'm available to uh, for spiritual conversation, counseling, coaching, uh, reflecting for people who mystical experiencers, uh, those sorts of things. And love. Yep. And you can find all that there. So appreciate it. And uh, thanks for coming on the show and uh, everybody else. Thanks for watching. If you've been out there and uh, Leslie, thank you for uh, participating. I definitely enjoy it when we have people, you know, that are from the audience that ask questions and participate in the broadcast. So, all right. Well, check you out, Peter. Thank you again. Peace and love everybody. Thanks, Sean, for having me very, very much. You, you are a pleasure for a host. All right. Well, thank you. That's, that's great to hear. I'm I'm happy that you think that (laughs) it's always good to get great feedback. So I appreciate it. All right. Peace and love. All right. See ya. Wow. That was pretty cool. Uh, I gotta say, uh, I was, I was enthralled and he captivated me as well. I was like hanging on my seat going, Oh wow. What's next? What's next? What's next? So yeah, great, great, uh, job, Peter. I I enjoyed that story and I understood you 100%. Um, so now I'm going to go ahead and, uh, pay this last bill. Uh, we need to, uh, this episode of podcast is sponsored by get past your shit by Kelly McCauzy. And I'm not flipping everybody off. I'm just letting you see my finger or not my finger, but the, the, <laughs> I'm just letting you see the name there. And this is 19 stories of imperfect people who, who, uh, prove that you can. So basically, uh, comeback stories and, uh, stuff like that. So, uh, the next broadcast is going to be on the 17th of May when I have two live streams for you, one at 4 p.m. Pacific time and one at 5 p.m. More on that as we get closer. I will schedule those the same way I did this, and you'll be able to uh, check those out. Uh, and, but until next time, um, stay true to yourself. Oh, no, no, I, I did that wrong. Keep it 100. Stay true to yourself. Because everything else is just noise.
and I will catch you guys later. You've been listening to the Nowhere to Go But Up podcast. Sean is a single dad, a union blue collar guy, and he spent time in federal and state prison for drug trafficking and fraud. When he was released from prison in 2006, all he had was the clothes on his back, a bag of mail, and some paperwork. Since then, he's turned his life around and shares the struggles and successes on this podcast. We hope you enjoyed the show, and we hope you were moved to connect to the show. Book a guest spot. For merch, Patreon, PayPal, and social media links, go to linktr.ee slash nowhere to go but up. On Instagram at nowhere to go but up now. On Twitter at but up now. On the YouTube channel at nowhere to go but up podcast. See you next time.